Hey there, all you cool cats and kittens. Welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for bearing with me. I was a couple days late again. Uh, This time, I don't have a good excuse. I was actually just watching Tiger King and... um, that was it. That's that's the excuse. It was every bit as hilarious as you've heard it was if you haven't seen it yet. And I had tweeted out, it, it's almost like a case study on the 48 Laws of Power. Seeing the way that these people try to get an edge up on one another, the way that they make their personalities, the, the focus of everything they do. Um, I just see Carol Baskins using the cat's paw, getting other people to do her dirty work for her. To me, that was really entertaining. It was just as entertaining, kind of looking at the psychology of all of it, as it was uh, the hilarity of everything that was in it. So uh, if you haven't watched that, trust me, it's it's everything that you've heard it is and more. And I had slotted time to get into the studio and get this recorded, and instead I was binging that and didn't get it done. So last episode was on mob mentality and got some great feedback on that. And that was one of, in my opinion, maybe the best show that we have done yet. And I was really, really excited about that one. But unfortunately, on the day we dropped it was the day that a lot of extra news came down about the coronavirus. And we find out that state governments are shutting their states down and that businesses that they deem non-essential are not allowed to operate anymore. A lot of people aren't allowed to go to church anymore. Um, All kinds of absolutely crazy stuff is happening, and unfortunately, a lot of that stuff took precedent over our episode on mob mentality. So if you were running behind, if you didn't check that out, make sure you go back and listen to that. That was an excellent episode. I'm really excited about how well it turned out, and I want to spend more time, probably more episodes, going over some books and just kind of going through books like we did there with Robert Greene's Laws of Human Nature. I'm going to talk a little bit today about pricing and some things from Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. And again, that's one that I think would be great to go through because one of the things that he does in that book is he explains these economic principles, but a lot of times he goes back and he uses Soviet Russia as the example of what they tried to do and how it kind of backfired on them. So today we're going to talk a little bit about pricing and he'll talk about how you know, Soviet Russia tried to keep a certain price low because they knew everybody needed to be able to afford this thing. And instead, these are the issues that were caused by it. And so they had the best intentions. And, and that's one of the, the things that I like so much about the way that he presents it is that it's not just somebody saying, oh, these dumb commies, they don't know anything about economics. But instead, he's saying, look, they had the best intentions. They were trying to make this work. But unfortunately, because they messed with the free market and they tried to do something that was against the principle of free markets, they, they caused themselves more problems instead. And I think that that's a really great way. Uh, one, it's a great way to teach things, but two, it's it's a great way to be able to speak to people that are coming from the left, to, to people who say, well, you know, I do think everybody should be able to have food at a, an affordable price. Or people that say, you know, I, I believe we should be able to give health care to everybody. And we can kind of look at a lot of these things and, and not just to tell them that that's a dumb idea and that we think that's silly, but instead to say, look, I understand what you're saying, and I understand that you have the right motive. Your heart is in the right place. But if we really want to help these people, free markets are the best way to do it. And it has been um, a crazy couple of weeks to talk about free markets because we run into this really weird situation where um, governments are shutting down half the economy, and then you've got 
half the country yelling that this is proof that capitalism has failed and uh, that we this is the perfect opportunity for us to do away with capitalism because it's obviously garbage and it doesn't work because otherwise, why would we be in this mess? Um, and I would point out that, ironically enough, if you took any great socialist country or any communist country and you locked all their people in their homes and told them they weren't allowed to go to work anymore, it wouldn't be long until they start worrying about starving as well, right? Because if, if nobody's doing the work, if nobody's producing any of the goods, um, you're going to run out of goods and it's just not going to work. So we're in a really tough, really bad situation with our government. And it seems to me that this is only the beginning. And regardless of, of how you feel about why they're doing this or you know what their motives are or anything like this, um, this is not the first time you're going to see a lockdown like this. And I believe that this is going to become much more normal over the next decade or two. And it may not happen every year for a while. It may not happen, you know, every few years, but this is uncharted territory for us now, but give it some time. And this is going to be something that becomes just as natural as us getting felt up and x-rayed by TSA agents as we try to get on a plane, because one event happened a long time ago and that's going to change the way that things happen from this point forward and the way that it affects you, the way that it affects your security and your privacy and ultimately your liberty. So let's talk coronavirus. Let's talk about the virus itself. We need to make it completely clear before we go any further. As you've heard me say before, the the things that you hear on this show are for your entertainment and your education only. They are, are my opinions and the opinions of those of us here at the show, and they are not medical advice, okay? Do not leave the show and go drink aquarium cleaner. Do not leave the show and go snort bleach or eat Tide Pods or whatever else. You need to make medical decisions for you. Do not take my advice for it. I'm not a doctor, and I'm not your doctor or your lawyer or anything like that. So let's just get that clear, get that out of the way. So I have not spent a ton of time researching the virus itself, but I've found a handful of good sources that I think I've got a pretty decent grasp of what's going on here. And we're in kind of a tough spot because we've got a media who's supposed to tell us about these things, and they're supposed to keep us informed. But as you know, a lot of people don't trust the media at all, and a lot of people distrust the media to the point that... If the media tells them one thing, they believe the opposite. And so the media tells us that we have this dangerous virus and that it's killing people and that it's very contagious and it's going to spread all over and we need to make sure that we lock ourselves in our houses and we stay away from people the best we can and we always keep distance from people and we wash our hands and we do all this stuff, um, that those things are important to do. But what a lot of people who don't trust the media at all are just believing that this is absolutely nothing. And so they're not taking any precautions and they're just completely ignoring it and trying to go on with life as normal. And that's really tough. But unfortunately, you know, I mentioned it on the show before that, the, you know, the story of the boy who cried wolf. And when you lie so many times, when you try to stir America up into a frenzy so many times that people stop listening to you, then they're not going to listen to you when there is a genuine threat out there that you're trying to warn them about. And I think that that's part of what's happening with this coronavirus thing. From what I've been able to gather, I do think that the coronavirus is every bit as contagious and rapidly spreading as they say that it is. And what's even more scary about it is if you are healthy or especially it doesn't seem to affect children that much. So young, healthy people or children may be able to actually carry this and spread it to other people without showing any serious symptoms themselves. So 
you might think you feel fine. You might think maybe, you know, you just have the sniffles or you're just having some allergy issues or whatever. But the reality is because you're in such close contact with other people, you could spread it to other people who it may be more dangerous to. So if you have respiratory problems, if you have some sort of other pre-existing condition, if you are old and frail and weak, anything like that, and then you get this, this could be bad news for you. And this absolutely can kill those types of people. And if the dominoes fall the wrong way within your body or whatever, it can also kill healthy people. It's not likely, um, but there's always a possibility of that happening. Or maybe, you know, you had some other issue underlying that you didn't know you had and that, you know, kind of combines with it and makes it worse. So it definitely is something that is fairly dangerous, I would say, you know, maybe very dangerous if you're in one of those kind of threatened groups. And it's very, very, very contagious. And that is something that we need to be worried about. You need to be washing your hands. You need to try to be staying away from people and and making it a point to try to keep this from spreading. Now, a lot of people are pointing to Italy and they are saying, we are Italy. You look what's happening in Italy now, the, the amount of deaths that they're having, the amount of loss and just how horrible this has been in Italy. And they say, here in America, we're going to be there in two weeks. I don't think that that's quite true. Uh, first of all, we're not Italy. Italy is about the size of New Mexico, and uh, the northern third of the country is the, the part that's being hit the hardest by this. And it just so happens that the northern third is the part of the country with the oldest population, and they also have the worst air quality. They've had a lot of air quality alerts over the years and a lot of problems. I'm not sure I'm guessing pollution or whatever, but... You've got old people who are already frail, who already have other medical issues that they're dealing with already, and they've been breathing bad air. So they're already going to have more respiratory and you know, maybe pulmonary issues. Um, so this disease is, is a perfect recipe for disaster for those types of people. Those are the, the people that you absolutely don't want to have the disease. And so if they get it, yes, more of them are going to pass away. On top of that, You've also got the way that they keep statistics, and um, I think that America is probably pretty similar to this too in a lot of other places, but one of the things that happens is when someone passes away, the death certificate, you know, the coroner or whoever fills out, it's going to have the cause of death on it, and the cause of death doesn't just have like one line. The cause of death has two or three or four or five spaces on it that you can list out the reasons this person died. And so if someone dies of coronavirus, it's very likely that they have died of coronavirus and heart problems and lung problems and, uh, you know, whatever else it is. And those kind of things combine together. And if it had been just one issue on its own, maybe they would have lived through it. But because of these three things together, those combined to cause this person to pass away. So what's happening a lot of times is people are already dying of something else, that they may have actually died without coronavirus, but because they happen to catch it, that's going to get put on the death certificate as well. And sometimes they're even testing people post-mortem. And if they can see that they test positive for the virus at that point, um, you know, maybe they were just carrying it. Maybe they weren't showing symptoms of it, but it's going to get put on the death certificate. And I think if we're being honest, I mean, we can see that that makes sense because if you were whatever, you know, the coroner or the health official or whoever it is that fills out these death certificates, if you got caught leaving that off of a death certificate, it would look like you were covering something up and you were part of a cover-up and there would be a big scandal and, you know, maybe you lose your job or you lose your license, whatever it is. 
So it's going to be in their best interest to just be as honest as they can be. And if there's signs of coronavirus there, they're going to put it on the list. But we need to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that that is why the person died. Just because it was there doesn't mean that that was the absolute cause of death. And sometimes that that's kind of the picture we get from the media is that if you get this immediately, your life is in danger and you're in trouble. When the truth is, if you're healthy, if you're young, you're in good shape, there's a very good possibility that you may not even get that sick. But you do have to worry about spreading it to other people. One thing that there were the virologist that Joe Rogan interviewed, um, I really liked his interview a lot. One of the things that he did mention, though, is that, that America does have counting against it is America is a very obese country. And he said that obesity a lot of times kind of plays out the same way that lung issues do for other people because you're carrying this extra weight, uh, you're dragging that around all the time, maybe you don't sleep as well or you're more prone to sleep apnea because you're overweight. And so if you are overweight and you catch this respiratory flu, you're going to be at a higher danger than maybe other people would be. So that is something that could cause more deaths in America. But if you look at the charts, you can see that America is showing more cases than anybody else, which is probably because we're doing quite a bit of testing. And also, you look at the deaths, and we're pretty low on the death count, and especially considering what a massive, massive country we are. The fact that we're not high on the list with death count is a really good sign. And of course, people are going to argue that it's only because the governments have, have shut down the economy and forced everybody to stay inside, or they're going to say, you know, it's only because, you know, we haven't tested enough or we haven't done whatever. But the truth is, we have a pretty good healthcare system. We have a pretty healthy population. Uh, we're going to get through this. And from a death standpoint, it's, it's not going to be that big a deal. Um, but we do need to understand that it is something that is spreading around. And, and it, it's not going to hurt you to try to take some steps to protect yourself. Now, the problem we've come to is... What do we do about all this? How are we going to handle this? Because you've got one group of people who are saying, uh, and this is the way that I've seen it presented a lot of different places, is that you've got doctors saying, you need to stay in your house. This is terribly dangerous. We don't want to spread it. We want to make sure that we don't overwhelm our hospitals. You, you need to stay inside. You need to try not to go to work. You need to you know, practice social distancing and all this stuff. Um, we absolutely have to keep as many people home as possible. And then on the other side, as it's presented, you've got people who are greedy and only worried about profits and only selfish and only worried about themselves, and they want to go to work because they, they don't want the economy to crash. And those are the choices that we're presented with. And what are we going to do? Are we going to rescue the health of the people, or are we going to rescue the economy? And we've talked about this before, but this the survivalistic part of the human brain likes binary choices. It likes narrowing things down to one of two choices. Are you going to hide or are you going to run? Are you going to stop or are you going to go? Are you going to fight or are you going to flight, right? And so it's the easiest way for us to quickly make a decision is to narrow it down to two and say this or that. And so when we're looking at this or that and we're arguing about which one it's going to be, there's not a good answer. But somehow, when we talk about these things on the internet or when the media talks about them, that's kind of the way that they've presented it to us. And whichever side you're arguing for is not taking into account the amount of trade-offs that are going to be there. And yes, doctors understand health better than the rest of us do. Doctors understand viruses 
better than the rest of us do. That's their job. That's what they're paid for. And that's what we trust them to give us good information about. But the problem is doctors don't understand how the supply chain works. Doctors don't understand how the stock market works. Doctors don't understand how a package gets delivered from China and makes its way to your door. They don't understand those things. And again, that's okay because we don't expect them to because that's not their area of expertise. But it's important that we collaborate on these things and that we find what works best for all of us and we find a way that we can keep our population and we can keep everybody around us as healthy as possible because even if it is just the flu, I don't want to get the flu and I don't really think that you do either, but we need to, to work together between all of us to find out what the best way is for us to continue work and to stay safe. And maybe a lot of us can work from home. Maybe a lot of us can take some time off. Maybe we should cut back on travel. But those are decisions that are best made by people. And people coming together with doctors to talk about what's going to work the best for everybody. Because now we've gotten ourselves into this really bad predicament where they've shut down the economy and people are complaining about you know, what, what's going to happen now. now. Now we're waiting on the government to send us out checks it's only going to make up a small portion of the paychecks that we've lost while they barred us inside. And then people are arguing about whether or not these stimulus checks are going to be sufficient, whether or not they should be bailing out corporations that they have shut down. So we've allowed government to cause this problem, and now we're looking to them to fix the problem that they have caused. And that's a, just a recipe for disaster. And there is no good answer when you get to that point. But I want to talk for just a few minutes about where pricing falls in all of this. Because on the surface, it just seems like a, a lot of people just think that the price of something is just some sort of arbitrary thing. And that it's just a number that gets thrown out there and that's the end of it. But in basic economics, Sol explains, he says that prices are able to find the right level much the same way that water always levels itself off. And if you are making chairs and you're making them out of wood, you're going to pay a certain amount for that wood, right? And you're going to use it and it's going to cost you a certain amount of money and time to create these chairs. And you're going to want to you know, try to move those chairs out uh, and you, you buy the wood, you bring it in, you build the chairs, whatever it is, right? And that's your goal, is to get these chairs out. But let's say that they decide to build a lot of new houses in your area. And so suddenly, people who are building these houses want the same wood that you're trying to buy for a chair. So what happens is, because there's more of a demand for wood, because the houses use more wood, that's going to cause the price of that wood to raise. And now... When you're looking at buying wood for your chair, it's going to be more expensive to make that chair, right? And so at some point, and, and probably repeatedly over the years, you're going to look around and you're going to see if there are other methods that you might be able to use to make this chair that might be cheaper. So it may drive the price of wood up to the point where you realize, I don't want to make chairs out of wood anymore because they're going to be too expensive and I don't think people are going to buy them from me. But... I can build chairs out of plastic. 
And so you start building plastic chairs instead. And you can get a better price at that and you can you can push more chairs out. And that would be an example of how pricing helps that wood find its best use in the economy. And while the, the person who makes the chair may not be comfortable paying a certain price for wood, the people who are making the houses were completely happy to pay that price because, because they needed it more. And it was well worth it for them to use that wood because you can build a house out of wood. You can't necessarily build a house out of plastic. Whereas with a chair, it's much easier to, to make that trade off and to make that happen. Now, one of the other things that's happening with the price of that wood is it's going to be raised to the point where people aren't going to buy all of it up so quickly that the forest is going to run out of wood. You know, or the loggers are going to run out of forests to cut down to make that wood, right? So they want to make sure that they can charge so much that their people aren't going to just scoop it all up just to waste it or just to just to take it all at once. And so what that does is that helps prevent them from running out of the thing that they need. And those higher prices also cause everyone else who's look, who's using it to look at the best way that they can use that resource to decide whether or not they really need it and to make sure that they're being um, responsible with their money as well. So what happens in something like this coronavirus scare where prices aren't able to be moved is we see shortages. Everybody's running to buy up all the toilet paper. Everybody's running to buy up all the paper towels and um, a lot of the canned goods and, and, you know, grocery stores were really emptied out there for a weekend or two. And because they weren't able to react with raising their prices, they, they run out of those things. And so people are really quick to say, you know, we don't want to price gouge. We don't want to raise prices. You know, that's, that's bad and that's evil and it's keeping things away from people and only the rich people would be allowed to have those things. But the reality is what that does is it helps people make their priorities of what they really need. Because if toilet paper starts flying off the shelves and it's a relatively cheap good, so it's pretty easy for you to buy up a, quite a bit of it, and people start seeing that the toilet paper is flying off the shelves and they're worried about running out, then at that point, all you have is, is a foot race to see who can get to the store and who can load up the most toilet paper in their carts at once and to buy it up and to take it home. So if you were allowed to move prices the way that they really should be moving, um, you could bring that price up gradually. You know, when we think of people price gouging, a lot of times you think of somebody, you know, buying a bottle of water and then trying to sell them for 50 bucks a bottle or something like that. But really what could happen, the best thing that could happen is if the prices, if the stores were allowed to raise those prices gradually. When I first thought that everything was going to hit the fan and I decided to make my trip to the grocery store to try to pick out all my essentials, um, I went to the bread aisle and the bread was almost all emptied out. Almost. However, there was one bay left and it was... I don't remember if it was organic or what was so special about it, but it was more expensive than the rest of the bread. So uh, at least in my area, you know, the, the cheapest bread and, you know, the cheap, cheap stuff is like 85 cents or 95 cents, something like that. And then, you know, more reasonably, you're, you're going to have a dollar fifty or $2 for a loaf of bread. And all of those were completely wiped out. But a strange thing had happened that there was this one bay left of this kind of fancy bread that was like $3.50 or $4 a loaf, and no one had touched that. And I think that's a perfect example of how, you know, this, this kind of soft price gouging could really help people not to use things up. 
because everybody needed bread when it was a dollar, a dollar fifty a loaf. But when they look at bread that was just a little bit more expensive, I mean, especially in a in a time of need, you wouldn't think that four dollars would be absolutely outrageous for a loaf of bread, right? But even in those circumstances, people were like, eh, I'm not going to spend four dollars on that. And so imagine if you could ju- have just increase the price of toilet paper by 50% or by, you know, just 100%, something like that. You could have saved a lot of these things from running out the way that they did. But instead, because we have deemed price gouging to be evil and we only talk about the most extreme examples of it when people wait until we're already completely out of things and then people try to sell it for some outrageous price, um, it comes off with this really bad reputation. But I think it's important for us to realize that if we were allowed to change prices properly, we wouldn't be running out of these things a lot of times. And Bob Murphy talked on his show the example of the guy who bought up like the whole storage unit full of hand sanitizer and everybody really got on him and um, he went to the dollar store and, you know, bought up all he could and went everywhere around and then he was trying to sell it for some crazy price. And what ended up happening was everybody got really mad and they finally tracked him down and found out where he was and the authorities basically forced him to donate it to somewhere because they caught him selling it on eBay and um, obviously they didn't want that to happen. But Bob Murphy points out, like, if retailers were allowed to change prices and adjust prices on the go a little bit better, let's say this guy goes into the dollar store and he buys up all the hand sanitizer. And he says, hey, do you have any more in the back? And they're like, you know, yeah, sure, we got another box or two in the back. You can buy that up too. And so they let him buy this up. Well, immediately they're able to kind of relay that message to their manufacturer that they're out and they need to have more on the way. And this this triggers them possibly to if they see it over any amount of time or they see it happening in several different places, they already know that they need to turn up the production because for whatever reason, the hand sanitizer is already moving. And maybe in the meantime, when they the store sees that they are going to be short on hand sanitizer, they are able to raise the price up a little bit more. And maybe if it's a dollar a bottle, and this guy's willing to buy 20 bottles, but if they raise the price to $2 a bottle, a bottle, maybe it's not worth it for him to buy all of them at once. So it keeps more on the shelf. And the funny thing also that Bob points out is that Because one guy did this and he drove all around town and scooped up all the hand sanitizer away from everybody, everybody sees him as a a terrible person, right? And he's he's the villain in all this. But if a thousand people had driven around and bought up all the hand sanitizer and they were selling it, one, they would be pushing the prices down for all the other ones who were also trying to sell it. And we would see them as a group of heroes. We would see them as a group of people who are providing to us something that the stores had run out of. And another issue that you have with this is that by keeping those prices artificially low, it also causes shortages because people who do have it aren't going to go out of their way to to sell it or to dig it up. So he gave the example, you know, a lot of times people gave out these hand sanitizer bottles just as like publicity. You know, it's got their company logo on it or whatever it is, and and they would just hand it out. And maybe you've got a box of those in your garage somewhere that that you, you know, had just thrown out because you didn't think you were ever going to use them. And now that we're out of hand sanitizer and everybody wants it, if you're allowed to sell it at an increased price, it may be worth your while to go out in your garage and dig through those boxes and try to figure out what you did with it so that you can sell it to a few people and, and make a little bit of a profit off of it. But if we're not allowed to raise prices on it, if anybody charging more than the standard retail price is considered evil and wrong, 
you're probably just going to let those sit in your garage and it's not going to be worth your time to, to try to deal with it just out of the, you know, the generosity of your heart. The same thing with the paper, with the toilet paper. You know, a lot of people are trying to get toilet paper now and they can't get to it because the stores are emptied out. And you've got these other people who are sitting with garages full of it, but they have no motivation to get rid of it or anything because it's, it's not gained any worth as far as the, the price is concerned. And so that's something that's really important to talk about because it kind of shows us in, in a real-life scenario how fixed prices or artificially low prices can lead to shortages of things. And then, you know, you also see the same kind of thing happen during hurricanes when people need bottled water or something like that. That if you were allowed to sell bottled water for, you know, five bucks a bottle or ten bucks a bottle or whatever, you know, outrageous price it is, people from the outside are going to see that they can, you know, kind of make that money as well. And it's going to encourage them and make it more worth their while to, to truck in water from several states over so that they can sell it as well. And when you get more people bringing that in, it's also going to help push your prices back down. And it's going to cause more people to, to come in and try to make a little bit of profit from that because it's worth their time to do it. Whereas if you keep those prices artificially low and you say, no, the old price of a bottle of water was a dollar, it's only going to be that. Well, then suddenly it's not worth it so much for somebody to drive from a long ways away because they're going to lose a lot of money on it. So yeah, there are always going to be people in times of need who are willing to help out and who are willing to donate their time and to donate their goods and to donate money and those kind of things. But there is a certain line for all of us that we are or are not willing to cross, right? Most of us are willing to hold the door open for a stranger. But a lot of times we may not be as willing to carry all of their groceries for them, you know, out to their car or something like that. So at some point along the way, you go from the point of saying, you know, yes, this is something small, this is something I'm more than willing to help with, to sorry, this is something that I just don't have the time to do or I'm not willing to do or I don't have the money to do. And by allowing those prices to adjust, you're going to be able to push more people over that edge of where they go from you know, wishing they could do something or thinking about doing something to actually being able to do it. And so that's just one way that prices are really helpful in that and that we need to make sure we keep that in mind as we talk about these things because they're not just some arbitrary thing that were made up by the manufacturer. Those are things that actually tell us something and they actually help us know where to, to invest and, and what kind of things need to be made and where the money needs to be spent. And that helps businesses know what kind of things they should be doing. And we vote with our dollars as to what kind of things we want. And you do that all the time when you make purchases, whether you realize it or not. And another place that prices are just as effective and are just as important is in the stock market. Because prices tell us what kind of things we should be investing in. And the money is going to move toward the things that people want the most. Because those are the, the places that people are spending their money in. The places that people are investing those things. So when the government throws extra money to bail out a company that is failing, it's really just messing with the prices. And it is giving money from the taxpayers to a company that is failing because they have made bad decisions or because the taxpayers weren't giving the money to that company on their own. And so it's important that we realize that in a free market, first of all, bailouts, they, they don't exist. They don't happen. But in a free market, when a business closes, it closes because that's not where consumers want to spend their money. It's not a good use of resources because if it were, people would want to be buying those things up. 
And just like we talked about in the episode about Donald Trump's tariffs and how they, they break windows, we know that you cannot spend a dollar in one place without taking that dollar away from something else. And so if we inject extra money into the stock market to keep it floating, if we inject extra money into Ford or GM or whoever to, to make sure that they can keep making cars, then you're taking that money away from somewhere else that people would want to spend it. Someone else is missing out on that dollar because it was taken from them and given to a business that was already failing. So as we talk about these bailouts, as we talk about stimulus packages and all that stuff, it's important for us to remember that bailouts, stimulus checks, um, extra money injected into the stock market, those are not functions of a free market. And those things can have bad consequences, maybe even devastating consequences when we mess with the market like that. And so maybe we'll spend some more time talking about that. Maybe we'll focus a little bit more on the stock market or what's going on with the Federal Reserve. If that's something you're interested in, just let me know. But I did want to make sure that I talked about some of the pricing issues that we've seen and just kind of use those examples as a way to explain how important of a function it is that prices actually serve. Running a little bit low on time, but I did want to talk briefly about a couple of the questions that a few of you had written in with. Um... Was coronavirus a bioweapon or not? Um, I really don't think so. I'm listening to this guy. I mentioned it before. I listened to this guy on Rogan, and he thinks that they were able to trace it back to China, and he said that there are ways that viruses can kind of transfer from animal to animal, and that eventually it mutates in a way that it can transfer from a certain animal to a human. And he said that if you look at the way that a lot of these Chinese marketplaces are set up, um, they go out into the country, they go out into the rural areas, and they they breed these animals or they catch these animals, and then they bring them all in and they stack these cages on top of each other in the market. And he said one of the things that they do is they sit the chicken cages on top of the ferret cages because they eat you know all kinds of weird stuff over there. He said if you were doing a college experiment over here, and you were trying to naturally create a new virus, he said that's exactly how you would do it, is you would sit chicken cages on top of ferret cages because the bird droppings drop down onto the ferrets and into the ferrets' cages, and that kind of just provides this perfect environment for this virus to transfer from the birds to the ferrets, and then the ferrets are able to, to breathe the air in such a way that it passes on to us. So that was his explanation of how they think that this worked, how they think that it began. And just listening to the whole thing, he sounded credible to me. That was something that I was willing to buy. And it seems like there are going to be more of these out there. And it seems like these kind of things happen and viruses have been mutating. We've been hit with all kinds of plagues over the last several centuries. And it's it's not going to change. Uh, Unfortunately, humans share this planet with viruses. And I don't think that it's a bioweapon. I do think that it's very possible that the Chinese government saw this as a great opportunity and wanted to take advantage of it. You know, they've been dealing with all these Hong Kong protests and protests are a problem for them anyway. And so what better way to tell people that you don't want them gathering in crowds and protesting against you than by telling them, hey, there's this new, terrible, very contagious, very scary virus out there and you better get back in your houses and lock your doors and shut up because otherwise you're going to get sick and and you could die. Uh, One of the other questions, um, can we avoid a depression in all of this? Well, I think that for the time being, we have avoided a depression. Um, 
They've injected more money into the economy. They wouldn't let it crash this time. So what that means is just that the bubble has grown bigger and bigger for next time. And we'll probably spend a little bit more time talking about macroeconomics in another episode. And I'd love to go into the business cycle theory and just kind of explain how some of that works. Um, But unfortunately, it's going to be worse in the long run. You know, Ron Paul compares this to a heroin addiction. And of course, every time they inject more money, into the economy, it's it's a lot like injecting heroin into an addict. You know, it, it gives them what they want, and at, at some point they may even think that that kind of high is normal and that that's what they expect. Um, but the truth is it's not reality. And if you're going to recover, if you're going to be healthy, you've got to face reality, and you, you've got to get used to it, and you've got to learn to live in reality. And that's something that Unfortunately, we're not doing in our economy right now, and we'll probably spend a lot more time talking about that, but it doesn't seem like this is the beginning of the, the next depression or the next recession, that instead um, they've, they've kicked the can down the road and they've put themselves in a, in a really bad situation because you know it could have crashed this month when all of these people are out of work and all of this shipping has been shut down and all of this business has been shut down. But instead, uh, of course, everybody's looking to the government to help them because you locked us in our houses, so now you need to make sure we have the money to live. And, you know, they, they've printed off that money. So it, the depression is not happening now, but it's definitely going to be worse when it happens because of the actions that they've taken over the past couple weeks and, and because of the actions they're probably going to take even more this summer. Uh, one of the other questions here, uh, is chloroquine a cure, in my opinion? Um, I don't know for sure. I listened to Jack Spearco on the Tom Woods show, and he said that there is something that you can take it with. I believe it is zinc, if I remember right, that, that causes your cells to be able to receive the active ingredient in this chloroquine. And that he says it's it's really good stuff, that it's very healthy, um, and that it's good for you to take, but that the active ingredient doesn't do any good if it can't actually bond to your cells. So you've got to take it with, um, I think it was zinc. Uh, it was really interesting. I, again, I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Um, but I've heard just over listening to several different podcasts about this, I've heard some good stuff about the, the chloroquine and the zinc, if I remember right. And then also um, somebody else uh, was talking about how you can use hydrogen peroxide and you can gargle it and you can swab it up in your nose and that that can also kill off a lot of infection and stuff like that. And that that's been a way that they have managed to stay healthy through this. So maybe those are a couple things that you can look up. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a pharmacist. I don't know. Please don't run after me after you drink aquarium cleaner or whatever, because I, I just, I, I can't recommend it, but those are things I've heard. Maybe you look into it and research it yourself a little bit more. Um, one of the other questions is, is this all a ploy to stop Donald Trump from getting reelected? Um, I don't think so. And here's why I, I had said before that there were some concerns that maybe people in the Federal Reserve or, or people who had access to the monetary policy were going to tweak some things and they were going to purposefully uh, wreck the economy or crash the economy before the next election so that Donald Trump would get blamed for that. And uh, that, you know, I've said repeatedly, I think he's going to get elected again as long as the economy holds up and maybe even then. But To me, that would make a lot more sense because your average person doesn't understand economics. They don't understand how the economy works. All they know is who is the president and what does my 401k look like, right? Um, I used to work with a lady who the Great Recession happened under George Bush and she lost her job. And so for that reason, she will never vote for another Republican again. She hates Republicans all because this one crash happened 
when George Bush was president. And as you've heard us talk on the show repeatedly before, it, Republicans, Democrats really treat economy pretty much the same. Democrats like to spend a little bit more on social welfare programs and that kind of thing. Republicans would rather spend their money on, you know, war. But the reality is that neither party is fiscally responsible and both of them continually set us up for these artificially big booms and then these big crashes that bring us back down during the correction. Um, and then they blow it right back up with an artificially big boom again. And so with that, I think it would have made a lot of sense for them to let the markets correct, to let them crash. And those things would have been blamed on Trump and Trump would have been stuck in a position where he's the one touting how great the the Nasdaq and the Dow Jones have been this whole time. And um, he would be stuck trying to explain why it crashed and what happened. And your normal people wouldn't have been able to understand what happened. And the only thing that they would be left to kind of look at would be, okay, well, I'm going to point the blame at the president. And, you know, we, we blame him and it's his fault. In the instance of this coronavirus, um, people do have something that they can point to, to blame for the crash if it happens. And I think that, that kind of gives Donald Trump more of a pass because, yeah, maybe the economy tanked, but what were you going to do? You know, we had this terrible virus and everybody had to, to hunker down in their houses and it scared the markets and all this bad stuff happened. And I think it just gives him an excuse. And so if I were trying to sabotage him out of office or anything like that, that is not one of the ways I would do it. I think it would be much better to kind of let those markets crash on their own or do what you need to do to kind of cause that crash that, that people couldn't explain so well. But this, this coronavirus is something that's very front and center and um, it's easy for them to put their finger on it, which I think takes blame away from the president if that were to happen. Uh, next question is, is this the beginning of martial law? Um, I don't think so. You know, I think we see some kind of soft martial laws coming in. We see, you know, a lot of states doing these mandatory shelter in place, stay in place things. In my opinion, this is just the beginning. This is kind of a test run. Everybody's kind of seen what they can get away with and how the population's going to react to it. And whether or not they're doing it explicitly that way or not, that's what these events are functioning as, right? This is going to be looked at uh, as kind of a playbook for the next big thing. You know, you look at something like 9-11 where, um, yes, it was a bad event. It was a, it was a terrible thing that happened. All of us who were old enough to, to remember that remember exactly where we were and, and how it went down. But because that happened... You see the government, you know, grab up all these powers and they pass the Patriot Act and they they create, you know, new agencies. And um, because that one thing happened, it's been almost 20 years ago now, two decades later, it's completely normal. We consider it completely normal that the government is reading all of your text messages and that, that all of your emails and everything that you've done online is, is put away in a folder somewhere so they can pull it up if they need it. And that whenever you go to get on a plane, they treat you like you're a criminal and they pat you down and they feel you up and they, they use x-rays to, to look through your clothes so that they can see if there's anything under there. And, and they do it to your children. And it's just completely normal because we all just assume, yeah, because this one thing happened 20 years ago, we're going to, to live in complete fear and to live completely without privacy and all of these things uh, for fear that it might happen again. And I think that this is functioning kind of like a new 
that this is not going to be the time that it gets bad, that we're not going to be, you know, martial law, military in the streets, anything like that, that those things aren't going to happen this time, but that this state of quarantine, that this state of social distancing, of these shelter-in-place orders are going to become so much more the norm over the next couple of decades. And because we had one scary coronavirus the next big thing that comes out, they're going to be able to use that as an excuse to make sure that they put us all in our houses and get us to, to, to hunker down and shut up for a while. And if they've done it over a virus for public health, they're going to be able to do it when there are protests or do it when there's some kind of other threat that they deem important or deem scary enough. And we're already going to be in a position that we're going to be expected to comply because we've complied before. And they were able to gather up extra powers to make us comply this time. You know, government is not supposed to be able to shut businesses down without due process. They're supposed to have to give a reason. They're supposed to have to do these things and, and serve them and allow them to, to fight back against it and, and to take it to court if they need to. But instead, they just said, hey, all restaurants need to shut down. All barbershops need to shut down. All schools need to shut down. And that was the end of it. No questions asked. And that's the, the biggest thing that I think we need to be concerned about here. Not necessarily, is this the event that's going to turn us into the Soviet Union? No, I don't think so. But it is going to take us a, a very important and a very tragic step toward that. And then the last one is um, when governments force churches to close, uh, is that a violation of the First Amendment and the right to assemble? Um, this is a tough one. Um, yes, it's a really, it's a really bad idea and it is not good for liberty. It is not good for your freedom and it is not a good practice for them to be doing. However, the first amendment does not directly apply to the states. Uh, first amendment says Congress shall make no law banning free speech, banning free press, allowing people to assemble religion, anything like that. So what that means is that was a power that was left to the states. Now, you are going to have a lot of states who have constitutions that are modeled after the the United States Constitution. So they may be violating some of their own constitution in that. We've got listeners in all 49 states, so I did not take the time to look up all of those constitutions to see how that comes out. But the idea behind all of this in the constitution was that the states would be able to make these types of decisions. And that if a state made a bad decision like they shut down all the churches because of a virus, people should be able to vote with their feet. And um, if you don't like the way that it's happening in New York, then you should be able to get mad, pack up your stuff, and move next door to you know New Jersey or whatever. And by them losing their population and losing the tax money that comes along with it, um, that those states are allowed to kind of experiment in the best way that they're able to run and that they are able to kind of look at each other and the, the experiments that they're performing and to see what works best. And, you know, it's very well possible. Uh, we've talked about before, you know, the people in New York may live differently than people in Iowa. They may live differently than people in Montana, may live differently from people in California. And so what's best for me may not be what's best for you. When we look at this coronavirus thing, people, once once again, like I said, it's very contagious. So people who are packed in tightly, places like New York City and Los Angeles, they may have much, much greater reason to worry. And it may be serious enough that they do need to consider some sort of 
some sort of shutdown. You know, I don't know how that would look or what's the best way to do that, but it's something that they may need to consider. Whereas someplace like Alaska, where it's not densely populated at all, may not be necessary. And again, I don't know. I don't know the best way to do this. Um, I would like to do another episode on how a completely free society without government or with with minimal government, um, how they would handle a pandemic like this and the things that they could do to hopefully prevent this in, in ways that I think could be better than what the current governments are handling it. But when we're talking strictly constitutionally speaking, the states aren't necessarily violating the United States Constitution by infringing on your rights in that way. Now, that doesn't mean that it is not an infringement on your rights. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be mad about it, that you shouldn't be letting your governor know that you will not be reelecting him for issuing these types of orders if you think that they're unfair. But strictly speaking, from a legal standpoint, um, I don't think that they are, the way I understand it anyway, they're not necessarily violating the Constitution by doing that. And finally, the last question is, why do you think that we see government officials clamping down on our rights so hard when this has never happened before. Um, I think that ultimately this comes down to the question of what do you think is the purpose of government? Because when this country was founded, it was founded upon the idea that the federal government was to be as minimally invasive as possible, that the states were to have power to, to make their decisions, but that the government was only there to protect your basic rights. That you had a right to free speech, that you had a right to assemble, that you had a right to worship as you pleased, that you had a right to own a weapon to defend yourself, that you had a right to your day in court, that you had a right to protect your property, and that it was important for government to recognize those rights and to protect them at all costs. And over the years, I think that the public's view of government has evolved and changed, and that we've gone from desiring a government that protects our rights to desiring a government that protects us. And if you think that government is just there to protect your rights, then you're allowed the freedom to, to deal with this pandemic however you see fit. And if you want to protect yourself, then you have every right to stay in your house and stay away from people and make arrangements at work and whatever you got to do. But if not, then you reserve the right to not worry about coronavirus or whatever pandemics out there, and, and you have the right to go out and to live as you please and, and to, to travel and to do as you please. However, if you believe that government is there to protect you, then they're completely right to shut down businesses, to shut down restaurants, to shut down stores, to shut down barbershops, to lock you in your house, to make sure that you have just enough food to get by on, and to tell you to stay in place, to shelter in place until it's safe to come out. And they'll let you know when it's safe to come out because their job is to keep you safe. Those of you who have kids know what it's like to have to keep someone safe. You can keep a child safe, right? But you got to tell them. You've got to stay in the house. You can't climb on things. You can't jump on things. Don't play with the electrical outlets. Don't play with anything sharp. Don't do this. Don't do that. Make sure they're safe, right? It's, it's, it's not that hard, but it's also not much fun. And there's not much growth there. And sooner or later, you got to let them leave the house. You got to let them learn on their own. 
And I think that that's a really important question that we need to ask ourselves as we move through this. What is the purpose of government? Because we can find ways to protect ourselves from coronavirus or whatever else is out there and still exercise the freedoms that we have. I have no problem with people staying inside for weeks at a time to to try to wait for this thing to pass over. I have no problem with churches closing their doors because they don't want the members of their congregations to get sick. That's completely fine. The problem is when you have someone telling you that you're not allowed to do these things for your own good because they've decided what's best for you. When they decide what's best for you, they do it in their own best interest. Their only goal is to get reelected in another four years. To hope that if anything breaks, if anything crashes, that it gets blamed on the next guy. So let's stop putting our lives and stop putting our futures in the hands of people who are only worried about what's going to happen in the next election. Instead, let's work together with my future and your future and your neighbor's future, your employer's future, and and all the ways that we interact with people as free human beings. And let's find the best way to beat this. Because I promise you, we can do better than somebody who's only concerned about the next election. Hey, thank you so much for listening. I know this was a little bit different episode, but just wanted to kind of get into some of these topics and uh, let me know what questions you have. Let me know what we want to dig into deeper and we will get more episodes ready. And make sure you go back and check out the Mob Mentality episode if you haven't yet. I'm really proud of that one. I'm really excited what we're doing. And once again, I think I'm going to maybe go through this basic economics book. But let me know what you think. Let me know what you're interested in and uh, what you want to know. And we can dig into these things even further. But until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.